Hey everyone, we hope you're having a great week. My name is Eric Johnson, and along with my wife Candace, we are the lead pastors of Studio. We are based in Greenville, South Carolina, and we just want to take a moment and say hello and say thanks for listening to this podcast. So with that, let's get right to it. But today I want to again draw your attention back to the life of Jesus. I try to do that every week where Jesus is in the conversation. And I thought worship tonight was beautiful because the team, numerous songs were around Jesus. That's all we want. We want Jesus. And so tonight I want to draw our attention back to the life of Jesus and to take another look and examine his life through a different lens, through a different light. I believe he's the one that we should aspire to be like. And maybe you're in this room and maybe you don't believe in God, or maybe you're not even sure if there is a God, then let me suggest to you, if you desire to be at minimum a good person, at minimum, if you desire to do good on the earth, then Jesus is a really good person to go study. You may not believe him in the end, but if you want a model of someone that was brilliant, that was intelligent, that had empathy, that loved humanity, and was able to bring truth into conflicting, chaotic, confusing situations. Uh, You want to see someone that healed humanity, that ultimately saved humanity. He was driven by the idea he was sent to earth to save humanity. So whether you believe there's a God or you don't believe there is a God, but you desire to be a good person while you're alive, then I would highly encourage you to, at minimum, study the life of Jesus. There will be things that you will learn and pull from his life that will help you, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. And so tonight, I want to draw our attention to Jesus once again. One of the unique aspects of Jesus is that he wasn't just a human amongst humanity. He wasn't just one person in the sea of humanity. It was that all of humanity wanted to be with him. And this is unique because you and I, we're amongst humanity. We walk the streets of a city. We walk the streets of our neighborhood. We go into our schools and our workplaces. We are one of billions of people. The difference with Jesus, he wasn't just one of a billions of people. He was actually someone that people from all walks of life, from the spectrum of humanity, wanted to be with him. It wasn't that he hung out with them. They wanted to hang out with him. And what makes it unique to me is that the kind of people that wanted to be with him. He didn't really have one group. He had his disciples, so we know that he gave his heart and soul and most of his time and energy to his disciples, as he should. But when you look at the kind of people that were drawn to him, you had everyone from the most elite in society. The richest, the most elite, the most educated, the most literate, the most, the most people that had the most privilege, if you want to use that word. Jesus, those people wanted to be with him. And in the same moment, the most impoverished people that were well below the poverty line of that day wanted to be with him. And everyone in between. Talk about a unique individual. Who do you know in your life that people from all walks of life, all social economic statuses want to be with someone? It's hard to find someone like that. Usually it's it's a group of people are drawn to one person. But when you have all kinds of people drawn to one person, it's time to make note. 
It's time to assess. It's time to examine. It's time to take a look at this man named Jesus and say, why is it that everyone from the farthest left politics to the farthest right politics wanted to be with the same guy? Because in today's age, that's not normal. That's not even common. It's, it's actually hard to find. Usually you find people that are from the same social status or the same economic status will hang out with people of the same status. And if you're in the impoverished group, you usually are with the people that are in the same group as you. And if you're in the left, the liberal spectrum of politics and belief, then you usually are gathering with people that think like you, look like you. And if you're on the right, the far right, or in the middle, I don't care on the spectrum, but you usually gather with people that are just like you. And that's how culture functions, especially in today's modern context. And the reason why I want to bring our attention to Jesus, Jesus was attracting everyone from every spectrum of life. And this is a, this is a very real message for right now. Because we live in a polarizing moment where we are told, find people that you agree with and you have the same view and that's your group. And anyone that doesn't fit into that view, this is what you do. You draw the line and you excommunicate, you cancel them, and you definitely label them the enemy. And Jesus had the exact opposite posture. That everyone in every spectrum of life wanted to be with him. So tonight, I want to examine that. I want to get you to think a little bit about yourself in that light. Especially in the season that we're in, in America specifically, and as the political season has definitely got momentum at the moment. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> if you have your Bible, turn your Bible to John 19. And John is the fourth book in the New Testament. And for those of you that are unaware, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the New Testament. And why is this important? Because those books are called the Gospels. They're also, they're also called the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. You can find almost the same stories in all of them. John was a little bit different. They consider him part of the gospel, but John was a different character. John wrote his book last. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their books, and toward the end of John's life, he writes his book, and some people believe that he actually wrote his book to fill in some gaps that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't talk about. So what you read in John is actually John, and John was the guy that he said he was the favorite of Jesus. And that takes a unique psychological makeup of a human to write for history to know, I was Jesus' favorite. I was the guy that Jesus loved the most. I mean, some of you re really resonate with that. You're like, yeah, that's who I am. Jesus says I'm the best human ever created. And so, and you're a unique individual. And, and other people are like, no, you're not the favorite. It's all the same. And so, but John was that guy. John was that guy that said, I'm the favorite. And so when John writes, he writes much more from a place of intimacy. He's writing from, I was God's favorite. I was the one that Jesus loved the most. And I think it's beautiful because you get to see another light, another narrative on the life of Jesus. And we're going to read one verse in John 19, verse 23. I'm going to read it out of the NIV. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's read that last part again. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. 
I want to draw your attention to this one garment, the undergarment. It was seamless. It was woven from top to bottom. This was a piece of clothing. Like every clothing item in this room has a seam in it. No one in this room has a seamless garment that I'm aware of. But I think it's safe to say 99.99% of every clothing item in this room has a seam in it. This item had no seams in it. It was a continual thread. There were no stops. There were no gap. There was no beginning. There was no end. There was only one piece. It was seamless. Now, this is just a random verse in here. And what's interesting about this verse, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention the seamless aspect of it. They only mention the garment that the soldiers were gambling for. But John says, no, the undergarment was seamless. This is actually not the first time in Scripture the idea of a seamless garment comes into play. If you go back into the Old Testament, before the cross, way before the cross, the instructions from heaven to the priests in the, in the nation of Israel was to wear seamless garments. And, and God actually instructed him, this is how I want it made. And he lays it out. You can go back and read some of the passages and just Google seamless garment in the Old Testament and you'll get all these great references. But the instructions were God had wanted the priest, the ones that would come in and worship God and the ones that would come into the most intimate place called the Holy of Holies were to wear a specific kind of garment that God wanted made. So this was the introduction of a seamless garment. Why is this important? Because this is something that God originated in his mind that this is what he wanted. It was a perfect garment that wasn't put together in pieces. It was one continual piece. And what's beautiful is the priest would wear these garments and the role of the priest was to come in and set up the altar and the sacrifice in places of worship to become, to become holy and to worship God. If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, this is all the time of humanity prior to the cross. And what's fascinating about the Old Testament is that when the instruction to anyone that was considered a child of God and the nation of Israel, your instruction was to remain clean. Your entire life was built around this idea, you must remain clean. And then it was also around this idea, this was what, this is, these are the list of things that will make you unclean. And you can go into the Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, and all some of those books that are honestly hard to get through because there's just a lot of information and data. But there's one part in there where it talks about don't touch anything that's unclean. So, for example, if you were encountered a leper before the cross, if you encounter someone that had leprosy, your instruction was to avoid that person. Don't get anywhere near them because if you do, you become unclean. Their person's uncleanness would now come on you and you were, you were defiled. You now had a blemish. And there was a process that you had to go through to become clean again. I can go to other details, but if you are interested in this, just start doing research on what it meant to be unclean in the Old Covenant. The point is this. The priest would wear these garments and the instructions were to remain clean. Let's fast forward to Jesus now. Jesus is now wearing a seamless garment just like the priest of old. Many say Jesus is the highest priest of them all. So here's Jesus walking around Middle East with a seamless garment. Instead of avoiding lepers, he would touch a leper. This is a game changer that a priest 
in the old covenant was instructed, go no, go near no one that was considered unclean. To, put, to make it even more pertinent, if a woman was having her period, she was considered ceremonially unclean. And she had to go through an entire process. So even interacting with the woman that was having her period that month, you weren't allowed to be around them. This is how big of a deal it was to God to not be around anything that was not clean. And here Jesus rolled onto the scene. He's wearing a seamless garment which represents what high priest and what priest would wear. And he's walking around finding sick people that before the cross were considered unclean. You're not to be near them. And Jesus would touch the leper and they would become clean. Why? Because he was ushering in a new kingdom. He was ushering a new reality. No longer does that make you unclean. When you interact with something, it becomes clean. Because the God that lives in you is greater than the God, anything outside of you. This was a game changer. Imagine not getting the memo and seeing this guy walk around touching lepers. And they're like, what is, imagine the disciples that, whoa, whoa, did Jesus not get the memo of what you're supposed to not do? And Jesus was demonstrating, this is how we do it from now on. We don't avoid uncleanness, we actually go to it. We don't avoid brokenness, we actually go to it. This is a major game changer. So this begs the question, what goes on inside the mind of a person that would do that? How do you embrace a worldview, a paradigm, a set of beliefs, a value system that would override the cultural norm of that moment and that day and say, that's not how I operate anymore? And one of the greatest challenges you and I have in a modern day context is culture is telling you how to be. Culture is telling you this is how you do it. This is how you do it. I have news for you tonight. Jesus said that's not how we do it. This is how we do it. And our great challenge is we are in major tension of what culture wants and what Jesus lived by example and action. And this is the tension of following Jesus. I mean, we can sit there and just cruise through life, or we can embrace this reality that Jesus had a different operating system, a different way of interacting with brokenness, with anything that was unclean, and anything that was chaotic and confusing. Jesus introduces a new way of doing life. So the question is, what goes on inside someone what kind of mindset, what kind of paradigm, what kind of value system do they have to actually live this way? I believe perhaps our greatest opportunity right now, if you are following Jesus in 2022, one of your greatest opportunities is to choose whether you're going to touch culture or avoid culture. We need pioneers and we need mavericks right now that will choose to touch culture. Because there's two predominant thoughts right now. If you touch culture, you become just like culture. Jesus said, no, when you touch culture, the culture becomes clean. The future is culture. I believe it's a multidimensional church that isn't running from culture, but actually choosing to engage in culture. Jesus demonstrated why we are alive, 
what it is we do when we're breathing, and how to do life. So let's not forget, he is the premier example of how to do life. Not just be a good person, but how to actually touch humanity. He was inside buildings and he was outside buildings. A common phrase that you'll hear within a church context, for those of you that may not be familiar with church context, is we say this phrase, the four walls of the church. What are we referring to when we say the four walls of the church? Essentially, this room has four walls. There's a couple extra ones because of a bathroom. But the general concept still remains the same. The four walls of the church. And what's happened, we covered this in week one and sometimes in week two, parts of it in week two, that we have reduced ourselves to just doing life with God inside the four walls of a building. We gather with people that have common values. We love Jesus. We want to worship together. We do sacred things together. We pray. We pray for each other. We lift our hands in worship. All those things, no matter what style and preferences and format, cool light, brick walled, or sterile building, it doesn't matter. These are sacred acts that you and I are participating in for those that follow Jesus. And we use this phrase, the four walls of the church. We remember Jesus actually participated in the four walls of a building. So the problem isn't the four walls of the building. The problem is, are you seamless in those buildings and outside those buildings? The challenge is, can we become a seamless human being that we're able to move from one space to the next seamlessly? Jesus wasn't switching hat. Okay, this is my teaching hat. Okay, now I need to... Multiply food hat. Okay, now I need to blind, heal blind eye hat. He wasn't switching hat. He was the same person through every scenario that he stepped into. He was seamless, just like his garment. There was a the fluidity to him. There was the ease. There was the naturalness. There was the flow. You're flowing from one space to the next. Instead of going, okay, this is off limits. This is off limits. And I'm okay right here. And sadly, our comfort zone is in this room right here. And this room will never stop. I'm just going to be very clear. I love, and we are going to continue to do what we need for a room. But let me tell you something. This is not the destination. This isn't the end game just to end up in a four walls of the building. The question is, can you, as a person, be seamless in this room and outside of this room? That's the question I want to pose tonight. Because of time, I'm going to have to jump to the very end. There's actually three things I want to leave you with tonight. So if you're taking notes or if you're not by this point, I would encourage you to write them down. I want to give you three things that I believe will help you to begin to move in this direction of living seamlessly. In fact, these are so important to me that I often tell people, if you don't got at least these three, please stop trying to touch culture because you're making a mess out of it. And I mean that sincerely. I'm like, okay, listen, you're making it a lot harder for everyone else that's actually trying to do the right thing right now. The first one is God's narrative on humanity. I had a unique experience. I won't give you the whole long story, but I'll give you the shorter version. I was watching this artist paint this painting. And to be honest with you, I didn't like it. And now, I'm not, I'm not a connoisseur. I'm not a, an art critic, but we all have our preferences and styles. And I was watching this artist paint this painting. And I wasn't impressed. I would actually be honest with you, really embarrassed by it. And it was, happening, it was happening in our church at the time. And I'm like, oh, nobody look at that. The cameras, please don't take a video of this, this picture painting. It's really embarrassing. I wasn't impressed. It was just, but it was up front. Everybody could see it. And I was just really embarrassed. And I remember thinking, gosh, I hope, I hope, I was just really embarrassed. I'll leave it there. 
And until the end of the night, I went up and I'm looking at this painting. I'm trying to like, I'm trying to interact with this painting. And I'm, I'm looking at it and thinking to myself, this is an ugly painting. I, I don't know what's going on here. This makes no sense. The color choice is very questionable. I mean, it, I was just going through my own internal checklist. And then I look to my right and guess who's standing there? The person that painted the painting earlier that evening. And I'm so glad I said nothing out loud. And I thought, oh, hi. I said, how you doing? Good, good. We just all the small talk. And I said, I'm just curious. Can you just talk to me what was going on while you were painting this painting? I'm like trying my best to understand. And she began to describe where she was at and where this painting was coming from. And you could tell it was not coming from a mind. It was coming from a deep, deep place in her. And this most amazing thing happened as she's talking, because it's in front of us. I'm looking at this painting, and second by second, this painting went from hideous to, this is beautiful. And I remember getting in my truck driving home that night, and I'm like, what just, I don't even know what just happened. I mean, it went from like, I can't stand this, I'm embarrassed about this painting, to I actually think I want this hanging in my house or my office, or somebody put this in the Louvre. I don't know, it's so good. And I'm like, what happened? And I felt like God said, because you got the artist narrative on the painting, not your own personal narrative on the painting. The challenge that we have with humanity now is we all have our own narrative on humanity. We have drawn our own conclusions about how bad, how evil, how twisted, how chaotic, how confusing humanity is right now. So the real question is if you want to be more like Jesus, you're going to have to get his narrative on humanity. And I believe it can be found in Genesis 1 verse 31. This is after God created the heavens and the earth. Six days of creation. He takes a day off on day seven. And on, before he takes that day off, he looks at everything he created and he says this. This is good. This is really good. And he's talking about humanity. Now I understand Genesis 3 rolls around and that's where Adam and Eve sinned. And I understand the role that sin. But even to that point, the original design... When you start understanding the righteousness of God, you start to realize how much God loves humanity. So the first step is, what is your narrative on humanity? Is it your personal narrative? Is it a painting that you don't like? But maybe if you got his narrative on humanity, perhaps your perspective and your approach to humanity will change. Second one, it has to matter to you. The book of Nehemiah, I'm going to read a verse to you. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. Now, verses 1, 2, and 3 is the opening verses of this amazing book called Nehemiah. And the short version of this is Nehemiah's home city was destroyed by the enemies. And Nehemiah at the moment is a servant working for a king. His main job was to serve the king and to taste the wine before the king drank it for two main reasons, to make sure the wine was quality, and secondly, it wasn't poisoned. So his job was to taste the best wine in the world, but his life was always at risk. And Nehemiah gets report that his home city, his home city is destroyed. And this is what you read in verse 4. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. And mourn for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is my personal opinion of what happened in the unseen realm. God was looking for someone that cared. Yeah. 
He was looking for someone that actually cared about his city being destroyed. And I have a feeling the word got out all across that part of the world. And God hones in on a guy named Nehemiah. Why? Because he's weeping. God said, there's my guy. He cares about my city. He cares so much about my city that I am now going to put all of heaven behind him. I'm going to give him every natural skill and every unnatural skill at his disposal. I'm going to give him wisdom beyond his years to come in and rebuild a city that at that point had taken decade after decade with no success. And within a matter of months, Nehemiah rebuilt the entire city. What explains a servant all of a sudden becoming a city rebuilder. I believe that God wanted to find someone that cared. So my question to us tonight, do you care about your city? When stuff happens in your city, are you weeping over it? Are you joyful over it? Are you looking at your city thinking it's them or is it we? This is a completely different paradigm shift, especially for people in the church. Because we've treated cities like it's the thing you don't interact with. It's unclean. We just stay in our buildings, in our spaces, and we just wait until the last day when God calls us home. In the meantime, billions of people are going to hell because we've chosen to stay inside the four walls of our buildings. And my challenge to you tonight is, does the city matter to you? Do you drive through the city and hear the statistics or see the challenge or the opportunity? And does it hit you on an emotional level? Or is it just this thing, it's out there? I just live here. I just put up with it. I believe God is looking for individuals that will be like Nehemiah. Does that mean you have to cry? Perhaps no crying, but it should hit you deeper than just, it's just a city. So it has to matter to you. Lastly, but not leastly, this one is stay in the game. One of the great challenges, I'm going to wrap it up because we're just about out of time. One of the great challenges you and I have is whenever we come up against a morality issue, we always choose to engage, disengage. So here we have a story in Daniel. I don't have time to read it to you. I'm just going to tell you the story. And if you don't believe me, it's Daniel chapter one. It's all in there. I promise you. Daniel is a a famous individual in the Bible. Perhaps one of my most favorite individuals right next to Jesus. Because Daniel was a young boy, most likely a teenager in his mid-teen years, somewhere in there. A king from a foreign country had come in and had taken over his country. And he was a young boy. And the Bible is really soft about it. It said they, the king Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city. What that means, that it was a complete takeover from another government taking control of this government. So this wasn't a handover. This was a siege, a takeover. And King Nebuchadnezzar said, hey, get me the smartest, most brightest, good-looking young men you can find. And so they found these young men, and Daniel was one of them. And the idea was, I want you to train these young men for three years in the Babylonian culture, in the Babylonian ways, which in the context would basically the enemy's ways, the enemy's culture, the way the enemy thought. And Daniel's now thrusted into a culture that is teaching him the ways of the enemy. This was not a choice, it was involuntary. But there comes a moment, 
At part of the training program, you are told what to eat. You, they want you to eat what the king normally eat, which is really good food and good wine. And they came to the young man and said, part of your training is to eat the food that the kings eat. We want to teach you what he eats, how he eats it, how to carry yourself, and how to interact with this part of the Babylonian culture. Now, the challenge was, and this is hard for us to understand today, what we eat is not deeply connected to our faith. When you talk to a Jewish person, they have specific dietary restriction because it's connected to their faith. What it means is, if I eat certain foods, it's almost like I'm renouncing my faith. You talk to a Muslim, they have a certain dietary restriction because it's connected to their faith. In modern Western Christianity, we're like, whatever you want to eat, just eat it. That's just how we are. In and out, yep, in and out's good. That's just Chick-fil-A, whatever you want, fry it. It doesn't matter, just eat it. And we have no concept of what we eat is connected to our faith. But in this context, for Daniel to participate of eating Babylonian food was like renouncing God. So here he's he stuck with the problem. He's stuck with the cultural issue that he cannot participate in, which you and I run into every day. I can't, I can't do that because this is violating my faith. This is violating my relationship with God. I cannot participate. We all run into this every day of our lives. And Daniel runs into this, and instead of bailing, he comes up with an idea. He said, I have an idea. And he talked to the head guy and said, listen, let me eat the food that I normally eat and let everyone else eat the Babylonian king's food. And at the end of 10 days, you can decide who looks better. And the servant said, if I let you do that, the king will chop my head off. He said, 10 days, just do 10 days. What's my point? Daniel came up against a cultural norm that would violate his faith, but he got creative and stayed engaged. Many of us, we run up against it, but we choose to disengage instead of getting creative to stay in the game. And this is my challenge to us tonight. Stay engaged and get creative. Tap into intelligence. Think about it. Be thoughtful. Find ways to stay involved in culture. Don't give up your space, your seat in culture. Because God is bringing you into that space. You say, well, God behind me, what's fascinating is Daniel finally said, okay, let me eat my food. The very next verse, God gave him favor. Some of you are waiting for favor. No, God's waiting for you to just make a decision to stay engaged, and then he'll give you favor. Some of you are like, should I take this job? Should I do this? It's a dark place. I say, man, if you feel like the Lord bringing you into it, say yes to it. And you'll find God might be just give you so much favor. It's ridiculous. It's the only way Daniel could get through this scenario. So for 10 days, they eat the food. At the end of the 10 days, the, servant, the king's servant comes back and looks at Daniel and looks at the rest of the men who had eaten all the great food. And Daniel ate vegetables. That was about it. And they looked at Daniel. And the Bible says he looked healthier, fatter, and better than everyone else. And in this moment, their servant said, you keep doing whatever you're doing, that works. The very next verse, guess what it says? God gave Daniel the ability to interpret all visions and all dreams. What's my point? Daniel was staying engaged, and heaven got behind him, gave him favor, and gave him gifts to understand all dreams and all visions. So Daniel had the ability to stay engaged because he was creative to stay in the game. So my challenge to you tonight, these three things. What's God's narrative on humanity? Do you have that? Secondly, cities have to matter to you. Culture has to matter to you. And lastly, stay in the game. So when we talk about seamless, 
one of our passions or heart here, that you become a seamless person that can interact with society seamlessly, with fluidity. Why don't you stand? Thanks for listening, and we hope this talk benefits you in every way possible. For more information about Studio, you can go to studiogreenville.com or go to Instagram and look for studio.greenville. We would also love it if you would leave a review and hit those five stars. Other than that, have a great week, and we'll see you soon.